clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Good afternoon, and thank you all for joining today's uniquely Rockefeller special client event entitled The Latest on COVID-19 Testing. Today's event is the 15th in our series and will be a conversation between Greg Fleming and our first returning guest, Dr. Jason Kelly, co-founder and CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks. A recording of this event will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com. You can also access this and all past Uniquely Rockefeller special client events by searching for the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series in your favorite podcast player. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce our president and CEO, Greg Fleming. Great. Thanks very much, Tom, and welcome, everybody. Clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, our employees and other friends of Rockefeller, welcome to, as Tom said, our 15th in this client series that we've been doing since early March when uh, the COVID-19 virus started spreading across the country. Um, as Tom said, uh, this is the first time we've uh, brought somebody back by popular demand. Uh, Jason Kelly, who is the uh, co-founder and CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks. Um, Jason's our first repeat guest, uh, really reflecting the quality of the dialogue that we had last time, as well as the intense focus on the part of all of us on uh, the, the progression of the COVID-19 virus uh, and the road uh, from here in terms of uh, testing and vaccine and everything else that we're gonna talk about today. It is uh, the first day of fall, uh, September 22nd. I do hope that all of our clients and the friends of Rockefeller had a great end to the summer. Just so people know, since the time continues to go so quickly, uh, winter will be here uh, three months from now on December 21st. So uh, time continues to march forward even in the world that we're living today. Um, the one thing I'll say about Ginkgo uh, Bioworks is that uh, uh, it has been listed for the last three years on CNBC's Disruptor 50 list of fast-growing companies. Uh, and I can, I think, safely say uh, that if anything, uh, during this COVID-19 time, and this is obviously not true for so many businesses across the country and around the world, their growth uh, would be even faster than it was coming into this. They've pivoted and they are an integral and central player on the testing and broader front regarding COVID-19. So with that, uh, I will turn uh, and welcome Jason Kelly back. Jason, thank you uh, for being here yet again. We appreciate you coming back onto the program. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be the the first return guest and beat Jeter out. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> exactly, that's true. <laughs> I'll make sure I tell I'll him that. I'll take it. Today. I'll take it. <laughs> Could be listening, Jason. So you may just. I, have <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he'll laugh. Um, well, it is great to have you here, uh, and uh, we are all uh, looking forward to uh, to the dialogue. So let me start uh, because uh, Ginkgo and you have been uh, working on so many fronts, uh, and when you were here last time, uh, and the actual date, just to uh, refresh your memory, was May 28th, mm. uh, you were talking about some of the things that Ginkgo was investing in, including a lab that would be based outside Boston that you were hoping could uh, uh, complete, I believe, in the neighborhood of 100,000 tests a day uh, of the COVID-19 uh, potential virus. So uh, let us know, how has that come in the in the basically the three months or so since we last had you on? Yeah, feels feels like longer, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, Greg. Yeah, so maybe I'll give just a, a, like an inch about uh, to remind folks kind of how to how to think about Ginkgo so you can understand how we were able to take our platform and, and use it in the COVID space. And then, yeah, happy to speak to sort of the latest on on uh, what's new since we last spoke on the testing side. So, so you know, Ginkgo as a company, we're essentially a horizontal platform company, platform company in the biotech space, uh, which is pretty common in tech, right? You see, you know, uh, like an Amazon Web Services or a, or a Microsoft Windows is a common platform regardless of market. Uh, in biotech, you tend to see product-based companies. You have a pharma company that has a, is a sort of a basket of drugs, or an ag company is a you know basket of seed products. Uh, Ginkgo really sees ourselves as uh, sort of almost like an Amazon Web Services, where we have a, a big uh, uh, lab, automated lab infrastructure that we can use to do biotech work across a range of different markets. Um, range, you know, we have a $100 million joint venture with Bayer to engineer microbes for agriculture. We work with Roche and antibiotics. And then back um, in March, April, um, when really the pandemic started to take off in, in Italy, we recognized 
could we take our platform and, and make it available uh, uh, for applications around COVID-19? And, and so we did do that. Uh, we opened it up to folks developing therapeutics and vaccines. Uh, probably most notably, uh, we've been working with Moderna, uh, who sort of uh, was the first um, vaccine to enter phase three clinical trials. It's a nucleic acid-based vaccine, and happy to talk about that later. But we we completed a project with them to optimize the manufacturing of vaccine that vaccine, so they could get more more doses out per run of their in, uh, sort of tanks and infrastructure. Um, that's an example of where we used our platform. But the other area uh, that we spoke about last time uh, was to take all of our automation and, and use it to try to bring down the cost and increase the scale of testing for COVID-19. And the reason this is important, uh, and we can, we can get into this in today in detail, is there's sort of two broad markets for COVID-19 testing. There is clinical diagnostics, of, you know, which we do probably seven or 800,000 clinical diagnostic tests per day right now in the United States, where it's a doctor ordering a test for a symptomatic patient. And then there's this other sort of unique to a pandemic need for testing, which is I wanna reopen universities, schools, workplaces, my city or town. Uh, and in order to do that, I can use broad scale testing in order to suppress the virus, to essentially go find asymptomatic individuals and help them uh, to, to quarantine and, and have supported isolation to break the chain of transmission. And, and that was really what we wanted to focus on at, at Ginkgo. So we launched, you know, back when we had spoke, uh, I guess the end of May, we, had, we were just about, to, uh, I guess we did it in mid-June, uh, we announced a, a brand called Concentric, uh, which is our sort of um, uh, offering to workplaces and schools for this sort of reopening uh, type testing. Uh, we also uh, closed on an investment round where Illumina came in um, uh, for $70 million. And then, uh, and then uh, since we spoke, we also were a recipient from the National Institutes of Health, uh, one of seven companies selected under their RADx program for advanced testing. And that's to support that 100,000 tests a day facility you mentioned. And so where we're at today, I wish we could show photos. Uh, so, we, so we have uh, we're, we're currently carting in sort of uh, robotic arms and a lot of the, the uh, highly automated infrastructure that will be running uh, through that facility. And we should have it open sort of uh, tail end of October, early November, uh, sort of at large scale. And then we're going to hopefully put uh, in an ideal world pool testing on top of that to get that number even larger. And so we can we can discuss that, too. Uh, but in the meantime, we've been we've been opening schools using a saliva based PCR test on the back end um, through a, a couple of partner labs. Um, and so we are able to to use that. And that's that's partially how we're able to to work with customers today. And so we can have you speak about all those things. That's great, Jason. And that, thanks. That's a terrific overview uh, for those who might uh, need the refresher or uh, who missed the first program. Uh, and I do want to make sure I tell everybody that if you're connected uh, to the program through Teams, you can use the question and answer feature in Teams to send questions in and I will take them on an ongoing basis uh, during the dialogue with uh, Jason. So uh, we're happy to have our clients and uh, our employees and others uh, participate in this dialogue as we did actually for the first time uh, with Derek Jeter in the last program. So Jason, uh, you mentioned the testing and, and the, the, the entities that you're helping with testing. Um, I think you're, you're, uh, you're working with, uh, with primary, secondary schools, yeah. uh, university level, uh, yeah. And um, and you know yet there's uh, I don't know ten or twelve of these uh, clients that you're working with. Can you talk about how that's going? And you know people are very interested in what one school is doing versus another, and you know really uh, emerging best practices in the space. I know actually uh, you're also doing testing for a school that uh, uh, your child is at, which is uh, incremental pressure for uh, for you. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of entities you're doing testing for, and and what best practices are coming together there? Yeah, yeah, happy to do that. Uh, yeah, so so I, I think it's you know what what's funny is la last time we spoke, you know, uh, one of the things I, I mentioned was I, I felt like we were all gonna have to become like novice epidemiologists and figure out you know for our community that we're responsible for, you know, and for those of us in leadership positions, what is our approach to this whole thing gonna be? And um, and it's funny, like I, I think it was interesting because a lot of places took the summer. Uh, like like kind of people had decided to work from home. I think doing it over the summer was less of a big deal. Uh, a lot of those places may already had some folks who would, you know, have a vacation place for the summer and things like that. But the fall is driving a lot of people to say, you know, I, how much longer is this going to go for? Uh, and should I be bringing um, uh, workers back on site? And so we're, we are seeing uh, this, the universe. So there's sort of like three 
groups that I could answer that question for. There's sort of K through 12 schools, uh, there's universities, and then there are uh, kind of offices, essentially workplaces that would be like indoor workplaces um, that didn't open up previously that weren't sort of like an industrial line or something that, that's had to be open this whole time, but these sort of folks trying to make the decision about coming back or not. Uh, what, you, what, what would you like me to talk about first, Greg? Yeah, let's go through the K to 12 and then we'll go to university and then we'll do work last uh, yeah. because I think that's probably coming online last. And I know on both K to 12 and university, there are some places that you think are best practices where they're really doing it in a fashion where, you know, they ought to be able to stay ahead of uh, what's a very contagious virus. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so a few things. Right, so let's talk about K through twelve, right? So, so I think one of the big challenges here is uh, it is it is hard to give a pat answer because the the local uh, level of the outbreak around your school greatly affects what is or is not a good idea. And and probably the best guidance I've seen on this there's a um, the Harvard Global Health uh, Institute has a sort of like a color grading scale but 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 it's it's relatively simple to understand so 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 the, the if you wanted to track this for your local area the most relevant piece of information is the number of new cases per populations and the number that's usually quoted is per 100,000 people okay so how many new cases showed up that day per 100,000 people and so to give you a, a sense in Massachusetts right now it's like three or four new cases per 100,000 in Missouri, it's about 28 cases per 100,000. Okay, so you have pretty big spreads. And if you look at the Harvard numbers, they'll say if it's above 25 cases per 100,000, it needs to be all remote. And if it's below one, everything can definitely be open. If it's below five, take, you know, you can, you know, maybe you should worry about your high schools, but K through uh, five can be open. And, and there's sort of different tiers that you can go read the report on, on what they suggest. And so what, you, what, what matters is that new cases per 100,000. And the other number people will often talk about, just for clarity for folks, is the case positivity, which basically means what percent of new, of tests that get taken are positive. And, and people like to see that number be less than 5%, okay, why? The only reason that number matters is, is so that you believe the new cases number. <laughs> so the new cases number is the relevant one. And is it below 5% or we're seeing 2% or 3% positive cases? All that means is the other number is believable. If it's 20% positive, you have this fear that like, oh my gosh, there must be lots of people who aren't actually even getting tested. And so that number that's being quoted by my public health department is not the real number and it's actually higher. So, so what they like to say, so the kind of guidance today is if it's less than 5% case positivity, great, check that, throw that number away. Now I can go read the number that says how many new cases are there per 100,000. And like, and that's, that's effectively how well your local government is doing. At, at, at what is sort of a top line job for every local government right now, which is to keep the case count low so that we can have our schools open and our workplaces open. So that's the metric you should be holding sort of your local um, uh, government to. Um, does that make sense that that sort of- Jason, can I just jump in on that? Cause yeah. I, you know, and again, as you said, we're arm, armchair epidemiologists, everybody. So, you know, yeah. I read a lot of, of what's going on in the space. And New York State seems to be trying to have a positivity test rate less than 1% which would is and, and they look at that and they quote it daily. Yeah. Yeah, and again yeah, and and again that that means it's more you're 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 doing great. The lower that number is, the the more uh, believable your metrics are, but but the number that rules the day is in my view is new cases per 100,000. Okay. That that's really like how likely it is that any any person you bump into the, on the street is like a new case of COVID-19. And how okay. How frequently, Jason, are you like in K to 12 and in university, how frequently are you doing the testing to try to stay on top of it? Like in the programs you're doing? Yeah, yeah. So, so and again, ultimately different places make their own decisions about this, right? That's why it's a, a bit tricky. Uh, and, and so people really do have to figure this out. And so so you, we do try to share with folks like what, what we've seen out there. Um, the So with the K through 12, what we're currently seeing most commonly is the teachers being tested. So for example, Cambridge Public Schools just announced that in, in Massachusetts that they'll be doing uh, testing, uh, the state's going to be paying for testing for all the teachers once a week. Um, and uh, that's an example of, of a testing program. Um, 
you aren't seeing yet too much of the students being tested because just the numbers are very big and um, cost for the current generation of tests. And we can speak later about you know what new tests are coming down the pipeline um, are, are still a bit prohibitive for for testing all the students. But the I think at this point uh, the states could be uh, testing the teachers regularly. And there are, you know, there's varying, this is the problem, it's a new disease, so we're, there's lots of information, new reports all the time, but there, there is a decent amount of data from Europe who opened their schools earlier uh, that, that uh, the bias was towards teacher to teacher or teacher to student transmission versus student to teacher. Um, but again, that's a pretty, the CDC recently also reported some results that showed it going from student to teacher and student to student. So it's not as if it can't happen. Uh, this is all a, a like a game of probabilities and statistics, but, but uh, I think a good program, my recommendation uh, would be uh, broad uh, testing of teachers. I think we have the testing capacity to do that today in areas of low prevalence. And so you are seeing certain areas, uh, hopefully Cambridge is a good example of this, but but schools in the Boston area where our prevalence is low who are going out with regular teacher testing. Um, and and let's, you know, we'll, we, we will run that experiment basically. Um, and, and, but I'm hopeful that that keeps case counts low um, among, the, among transmission within the school. But and that, that's main, that, and, and, and that testing of teachers, like I said, would be about once a week is what we've been seeing. Yeah. And then at the university level, you had mentioned a, a university that you thought was doing particularly well, uh, University of Illinois. Can you talk a little bit about what, what, what's gone on there? Yeah, so the, so the universities is like what gives me hope about this whole thing. So, so, so number one, like there's so many, like, so I, I swim in this stream constantly. So, so the problem is you can get a, a story about this or that, uh, you know, oh, this horrible thing happened or this fraternity, this. But so like I try to, sift through the noise. So, so anyway, here's here's my just my best parse on the situation. So so the universities are, are are heartening to me because they have it the worst. Okay. They have a large number of people in their little pod, if you want to think, you know, right? Like like at Ginkgo, you know, we've got 500 people. So there's 500 people that I need to think about. Hey, how can I prevent transmission within that community? I'm going to have some of them work from home. Others that are in the lab, we're going to do reg we do once a week testing, you know, and all this. Okay. But you know, <laughs> your state university's got 30,000 people to deal with, right? And so, so you, so you just got, a, you know, you know, as soon as the students are going to show up, there's going to be this many new cases because they're all coming, you know, just, it's just statistics, right? And like, given the case probabilities in all the hometowns where they're coming from, there's going to be this many that show up that first week. And so they had, University of Illinois had this great model. By, by the way, MIT and Harvard and places are doing great too. But there at MIT and Harvard, they have all the resources in the world and they have a smaller student body. So the reason I, I, I bring up University of Illinois is because they really had a challenge, right? Uh, and so they had an expectation that they'd see a bump in the first weekend. And so they, um, for example, worked with their local community to say, we're going to have the bars closed the first week weekend when everyone comes in because I want to do broad testing of all the students. I want I have a dorm that's just for quarantining. So the ones that come back as a, as a hit, I'm going to put them over there. And we're going to get our, our level down a little bit, and then we'll reopen the the local bars. And the bars did this because they're in it. They need they want that school to be open too, right? Like you know, everyone's got kind of pulling together here at a community level where the school is representing, you know, like a um, like a pillar of of a college town, and essentially saying, look, we, we are part of the economic engine here. We're part of why this place exists. Let, let's all work together and 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 have this scheme set up. Okay, so 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 they have twice a week testing of all the students. They actually surveyed the students ahead of time to see like who should get, you know, who uh, contacts more people, who goes out more, you know, like like to even affect like when they would get their testing. And then the um, and so they would so they would uh, do this testing and they saw exactly what they expected a spike, and then they crushed it right. So they did a bunch of tests and it went down. And and I talked to the guy. They were so excited. I was like, this is great. And I'm like, oh, wonderful. Now that it's the next weekend, <laughs> now now it's and and you might have seen a bunch of news about this. It was there's like all these jokes about like this physicist that had a model assuming people wouldn't go to parties and all this stuff. Like poor guys, and and, and so they had big increase in cases. It went from ten to two hundred positives uh, by like the after like the Monday after that following weekend. So there's this bit, you know, the fraternities were open, the whole thing, right? And so they said, okay. Got to they they kibosh. They they like basically said, listen, we're doing this. You know, these are going remote. Parties are canceled, and they and they made a bunch of changes to how the community would operate, and and the and it went back down, and and so like now their, I think their cases yesterday were like three or four. By the way, you can, you can Google University of Illinois COVID data and go to their dashboard, and it's public, and you'll see, you know, over the summer there weren't many people, then a little spike when all the students come back, then a big spike that first party weekend, and then it's been flat for the three weeks since then, and, and the reason is they can monitor. 
right? Like they know what's going on. So, so they, they, because they see the cases going up, they can make changes to the rules and get them back down. And then they can offer the students, look, hey, you wanna have parties again? We'll allow it, but if we start to see this happening, we're gonna do this, this, and this. So, you know, be responsible for your community. And I, and I, and I'm optimistic it's gonna work. And, and, and the reason is they have visibility into what's happening. If you're, if you don't have that testing, you're driving blind, right? And so we've already had, there's a great Washington Post article just a couple of days ago that went through stories of a few schools, some of which had to send kids home because the outbreak got out of control. And, and, and that's a real issue because then you just send back all these kids who, who are like vectors, right? And so that's that's the worst of all worlds. And, and so, so you have this, you know, what I will say is the the in that Washington Post article, they mentioned that the one consensus statement is that testing helps. And, and, I, and I think that, is being proven at the scale of a whole university now and, and a big one at that with the University of Illinois. Like, I, I, I you know, my expectation is if you want to be a university open in a real way, um, come the spring, it's, the, it's their model. It's twice weekly testing and careful monitoring and adjusting policies as a, as a result of cases. And I think every, every university that wants to be serious will have that. You know, it's one of the things that you said that's great is the, the, the sense of community, uh, involvement and concern uh, among college students, which which might, you know, they might not ordinarily get the benefit of the doubt on that. Yeah. Senior, my my daughter's a senior at Colgate. And, uh, you know, they, they had a strict testing. They, they tested them before they came. They yep. tested them once they arrived. They were in quarantine for two weeks. There's ongoing testing. But the students are, are really working to self-police because they want it to go on. So yep. that, you know, the, the notion that 18 to 22 year olds are just going to act in ways where this isn't going to be possible, I, I hope is being put to bed because I'm, I'm watching different conduct and hearing it from my daughter and you're talking about it at the University of Illinois and other places. Yeah, I mean, it, it is one of these, it is a collective action type of thing. It really is. It, it is a lot of small decisions that people are making that collectively determine whether the powers that be need to come in with more aggressive levers. Right, um, you know, which is, you know, if we, if I could scope up for a minute and 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 think about sort of like a mayor or a governor, right? You know, they're they're, um, you know, the the what what I what I think is likely to be the case is like they they all also have this same visibility, right, Greg? So, so like if you start to see the cases going up in Boston, you know, the mayor of Boston is going to come and change certain things, right? So, so like a city is almost like a microcosm, you know, like University of Illinois is just a little microcosm of Boston, right? You know, it's, it's the exact same idea uh, in terms of uh, why, why it's valuable, like why we care that that prevalence is less than 1% or 5%. It's to give visibility to the mayor and the governor so that they can make the right decisions about when to change things to keep the numbers down, right? Um, and so that's actually why I'm kind of, I'm bullish about the fall. I actually think I think it's unlikely we have some like runaway explosion of cases because everyone's watching. Yeah. They'll just shut things down. What what we aren't out of the woods on is more economic carnage, right? Like like the the like they'll shut things down and then that will have bang on consequences. Yeah. Right? It's like party, you know, close the bars, close the this, close, you know, now the movie theater. Okay, you know, like like that that that'll just happen very naturally because the visibility is there. And and no one's going to shut the hospitals down. And so like that that like that we're we're all living at University of Illinois, you know, right? Like like we're all the students, you know, right? And like and 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 kind of administration has the data, and so they'll they'll change the policies, you know, if that makes sense. It does, uh, Jason. One thing that I've, I've uh, heard about or read about was uh, is something called pooling. Um, yeah. And can you explain? Because if I try, I will not do what you'll do. Uh, Explain it to uh, to everybody, and 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 uh, and then comment on whether you think it's getting traction and helping. Yeah. So 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 the so the again, remember how I mentioned there's sort of like clinical diagnostics, and then there's open the economy testing, right? As these two categories. Clinical diagnostics is, is sort of the it it can pay clinical diagnostic prices. In other words, there's just not there, there's a lot of these tests, but there's not like a it, it, you do not need to test every unit, you know, 20 million people in the university system, either staff or students. So twice a week means you need 40 million tests a week just for those people. 
right? You know, that, yeah, it's 200 million tests a month, right? This is a, this is a huge number, right? Like, it's, you know, so of order 7 million a day. Just for the universities, we're doing 700,000 a day for clinical diagnostics. So, so if we were really going to do that level of testing for every university in the spring, we need 10 times as much testing capacity as we have right now. Okay, so a so couple issues. One, cost. Number two, capacity. And number three, turnaround time. So if you're if you're trying to plan the nation's testing program, those those would be the, the three things on your mind, right? Um, and so pooling helps with the cost and the capacity. It doesn't help you with the turnaround time. We can talk about there's some new types of tests um, that you might have heard about that are like these lateral, like almost like pregnancy tests that help you with the turnaround time. But let, let's come back to that. Pooling is really focused on cost and capacity. And the basic idea is if the prevalence late rate is low, right, and you're not testing, you're testing every college student, so they may or may not have symptoms. So a lot of them are just healthy people walking in to get their twice a week test. Overwhelmingly, they don't have it. And so if you take a group of their tests and put them all together and you test them all at once and your test is specific enough that it could still pick it up if only one of the 10 was a yes, well, then you just did 10 tests for the price of one. That's pooling, okay? And I won't, I won't go too, down, too far down the technical rabbit hole. It's not like a trivial panacea because each person, you still need 10 collection devices and those cost money. Right, so it's not exactly dividing by 10, but certainly from a capacity standpoint on the lab side, it, it is closer to giving you 10 times more capacity. It doesn't necessarily make it 10 times cheaper, right? Maybe it makes it five times cheaper or something, right? And so, so that, that's the idea behind pooling. Um, and so you are seeing a few, the FDA has approved uh, like a six-fold pooling approach on some of the PCR tests. I think you'll, I think you'll see more of that uh, i think it's a great way to get the cost down and and capacity up and we're certainly um looking at it for our uh genome sequencing based testing as well so, so I, I do think that's a great strategy but it, it basically gives you more capacity and lower cost but it requires low low rates in the community uh because if you start to have too many of the pools hit um because once you get a yes you got to go back and figure out who of those six had it so you got to do another round of another round of tests um that's uh, that was a great explanation. Uh, and actually, we have a question that is somewhat uh, an ex the logical extension of this. Uh, my colleague Brian Cunio wants to know if the testing technology is scalable, what are the perceived impediments to having a national, or he puts in brackets, maybe even global uh, type test, whether saliva or otherwise? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, yeah. What, here, I'll, I'll I'll put you in the shoes of of a, of like a governor or something, just to help you think about the 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 scale of the problem, right? So, um, so Massachusetts today, just like literally today, had two hundred and forty three new cases, okay, um, or yesterday, and uh, out of seven million people in the state, six point nine. All right. So your job, if you're Governor Baker, is find you know like 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 before those people in, infected someone else right oh and by the way like you're not getting everybody so there's maybe because some people are asymptomatic so let's let's say just to be like a let's say it's two or three times that many so for simplicity let's say it's twice as many so there's 500 new people every day and your job as the governor is find those 500 needles in this seven million person haystack and tell them to stay home for two weeks before they give it to someone else because the current replication rate you might see these like are not numbers that get quoted is about one in Massachusetts. So each person who gets it, on average, gives it to one other person. Some people give it to five and some people give it to none, but if you average it out, it's one. So if you're Governor Baker, you just need to tell 500 people to stay home for two weeks and then the next day do it again, the next day do it again, and, and you will have no coronavirus in your state in two weeks if you could just magically find those 500 people before they infected the other person. It's just as simple as that. And now, that feels like an impossible problem. 500 out of 7 million is a lot, but we have an unfair advantage, which is all the needles are connected by thread. In other words, each case came from another case, right? Like it only transmits person to person, you know, thankfully. So you're not, you know, uh, almost overwhelmingly. And so if e each one, you can go ask, who are you nearby? And, and then test all those people. So, that, so that's, that's the strategy at, at the level. That's why like contact tracing is so important, right? It is, I found one. It's like I found a needle. Let me follow the thread and, and hope I catch 
one of the other ones that's around it because each one is precious. And by the way, as you bring those numbers down, we get to do things like open the schools and open. The, so it's so important, right? Okay. And so, so, so back to, to the question of like, well, great. What could you do with a lot more testing? Well, you could say if a needle goes to this workplace, test the whole workplace, right? If the thread goes over there, test everybody because testing is in, you know, if you have an inexpensive testing, just do it. So you can dump testing on, on contacts. The other thing you can do is you can catch some people because if you start to test, say all the schools, right? And, and all the students at the schools, they're like little sentinels of their parents. And so you're actually suddenly actually casting a net across the whole 7 million and maybe you'll catch a few of those other needles that you didn't have a thread to, right? And so so that that's like the, I just want to like like point out why, like some people lose the thread uh, on, on why testing can be important for bringing this thing under control. My, my argument is if you really bet big on testing as a governor, you could get this under control in advance of a vaccine. And by the way, like, vaccines take a while to get through trials and they take a while to manufacture. So so if you want to get it under control in the next year, in my opinion, it's a testing thing. And, and I, but I wonder, does that make sense, Greg, that connection sure. between getting that new cases per day number down, how testing can help the governor do that, right? Does that, I, just want, I know I might be preaching pre pre the choir, but I want to make sure that that's, that's clear. Very does that make sense? Yes. And the, this, the, some of the references to Sentinel was very helpful to, to very clear. Okay. So, that, so then on, on capacity, then yeah, it just comes down to how many tests are there, what do they cost, and then logistically, can you deliver them, which is not not to be lost. So so cost and capacity, it, it is, um, both of those are no joke. Um, so so getting the, you know, cost today, it depends on the type of test, but you're looking at somewhere between like 50 and, and 150 bucks for like a molecular test. Um, you would have seen these ABBA tests, which are the pregnancy test style tests get announced at five bucks. Those are probably more like delivered in someone ha in hands because you need a healthcare provider to do it and all this other stuff. They're probably closer to like 20 bucks or something. So so cost at the scale that you'd like to do, again, let's say you're doing 40 million tests a day for college uh, students and staff, th those numbers can get big, not so big as the economic damage we're seeing, but real numbers. But su supply is its own issue. This is part of the reason Ginkgo's been trying to develop um, genome sequencers to do the testing is because a lot of the supply chain for the PCR test was maxed out. You, going 10x more there is, is tricky. Um, and so part of the reason we're doing the genome sequencing is to create an orthogonal, an alternative supply chain. Uh, and then the other pl big place you could really get the supply chain numbers up would be the lateral flow test, which is what people are most familiar with is a pregnancy test. Um, and those you can actually get to very large scale manufacturing. Um, you know, I think of order, uh, you know, Abbott announced that they can do 50 million a month. Uh, I think I think that's not a, a crazy number. Uh, they have to work to get there. But I, I would expect of lateral flows, we'll see, you know, uh, maybe by the end of the year, something like 50 million a month, not just from Abbott, but across a set of providers on the market. Um, there's a separate question what they'll be good for. Yeah. Um, but they, they are, they're a little more supplyable. Yeah. But Jason, are those, that's a, just to follow on with that because everybody's asking because is that, you know, much easier, much cheaper test? Is it reliable? Yeah, I mean, this is the rub, right? So, so, um, so they, they, they went through the, the EUA with the FDA and that looked good. Um, uh, you know, I, I think couple things. Uh, I think one of the issues that you're going to face um, doing regular testing with these is to look out for false uh, positives, right? So you can get a false negative or a false positive on test. False negative means, oh my gosh, I have COVID. I took the test and it came back negative, but I really had it. That's bad. Okay. False positive feels like it's less bad, right? Like you're like, okay, well, I don't have it. I got a false positive. Hey, okay, not the end of the world. I stay home for a little while and I take another test. Uh, the trick is like on that Abbott test, like 2%. Uh, and so so you can run into this issue where um, if you're throwing too many false positives and you're trying to use it regularly, you're sending people home all the time, right? So if you have 100 people getting on a plane and you have a 2% false positive rate, two of them got to go home, right? So that feels, you know, so, so there's a, there's a trade-off, and, and and by the way, these there are um, higher, uh, like lower false positive versions of these tests, but then it involves a machine, right? So if you have a machine reading the pregnancy test, you can get that number down. But what the more much more scalable thing is to have a readerless version. That's what Abbott announced, and there you start to run into a question of, okay, are, are you going to be throwing so many false positives? It's like too disruptive. And so so I think those are open questions. What we will see as these get on the market and are used 
on 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 a regular basis what what it works for. But they have this other big advantage, and which we didn't talk about. So one advantage is just supply chain. They're just another non-PCR supply chain. Um, uh, but uh, PCR being the kind of current gold standard uh, type of test. Um, but the other thing they have advantage on is they're fast. So whereas the you know the fastest PCR you're going to get would be like at University of Illinois, they run the testing on the campus, and you could get a, a turnaround time of like maybe six hours or something, right? That would be the fastest. Much more common is 24 or 48, or obviously you hear all the horror stories of longer. That's not really test. That's more capacity issues than test timing issues. When it takes five days, there's not enough capacity. Uh, but but 24 to 48 is more traditional for a PCR test. That These tests are like 30 minutes or an hour, depending on the test. And so, so that can be pretty useful depending on the application. You could imagine using it to um you know enter a large event or other things like that there is some talk about that so so um but that that is the third category of test there's the pcr test there's these new genome sequencing tests like we're working on and then there's the um lateral flow uh, so jason you said something that i'm sure people focused in on which uh we want to pursue a little bit which is uh testing if you're the governor testing is a solution because otherwise you're waiting on vaccine vaccine takes time you've got to distribute it and you referenced, I don't know, six months or 12 months. So, you know, there's a question that came in from William Curtis, uh, one of my colleagues. What is your biggest fear as we get closer to a vaccine? Uh, he goes on to ask about the growing number of people say they won't take it. But, yeah. but can we back up first and say, where is, from your vantage point, the state of the, the trend line timing on vaccine, both in terms of perfecting it to the extent that you would describe it, not me. You know, I don't know, I don't know they're ever perfect. I mean, vaccines have had challenges, you, you know, you, you, everybody's aware of that, every vaccine. Um, but beyond that, then the ability to distribute it, get it out there. So well, let's talk about vaccine because uh, it sounded like you were thinking we're gonna live with this for right into 2021 and maybe pretty far into 2021. Yeah, I mean, so, so, you know, I I, I don't. I, I, first of all, I'll say I, I know uh, I, I'm very close to what's going on in testing. I'm, I'm more of an observer on the vaccine stuff. So so um, I'll, I'll just share with you uh, just a few observations. Um, you know, the the FDA announced recently that they didn't think you'd see population uh, scale distribution in the U.S. until Q3 of next year. Um, you know, I, I think that is like an unoptimistic timeline for really having it out to everybody. Um, children are not in the trials right now. Um, so there's also talk about vaccines probably not available for kids before next year's school year, it probably won't be ready. Um, so even if it's kind of broadly available for adults, it's probably not there for kids, um, more on a regulatory approval basis than a supply basis. Um, th those are a few pieces of information. Uh, yeah, my, my ad, I mean, the universities are great examples of this. Like I, I, the, that Washington Post article I was mentioning that sort of did the rundown of universities a couple of days ago, because now you have that first three or four weeks of data <laughs> on, on how it all went and who had to go home and who didn't. Uh, the, the, um, the, the, there's a nice quote from a university administrator that was basically like, we've just accepted we're living with this thing into the indefinite, like into the indefinite future. It's it's just part of human life now, and and it's difficult. But we we need to have people on site, right? And th that's what's different about the universities. This is, I think, what the point people are missing is the universities most acutely feel work from home, for lack of a better word. In other words, like the the attitude of these administrators is like, without the students on campus, we're not even uh, we're not even there. You know, like, like we're not even an organization anymore. And they know they can't do that for too long before like the place goes up in smoke, right? And so so what they really had was they had to deal with it. I think private sector, just to get back, we talked about K through 12 and university, the private sector is still sort of living on borrowed time of like, hey, maybe this will be gone. You know, like maybe, maybe the vaccine's gonna show up and you know, we'll all just come back, you know, right? As opposed to thinking like, am I okay having my my workplace be work from home for two years? Right, like, like do I go poof? If if that's what I'm doing, right? You know, uh, and and I think if I, you know, for for Ginkgo, that that is very much the question we asked, right? We're just like, if we had to be this way for two years, right? Like, will it work? And and start to work on on a, on changing that because we didn't think we could. I mean, and now we have a big part of our business that's on site. And we have labs and all this stuff, right? So we, so we need there's a physical component, but like 
get you know getting everyone back is important to me you know and and i think different businesses will be you know um jp morgan was talking about bringing people back you know right like so so you i you know if i'm running a business right now i'm asking the question can i do this another two years you know that that's the safe very conservative look and and the more ambitious one would be one year in my view um, and, and then um, th this notion of uh, vaccine maybe being uh, available for for some groups of people in a matter of months. Uh, any, and I know that, this is that's true. Yeah. So I think you will have um, small amounts of it available for more susceptible folks, frontline folks. Like, like the other way to think about this thing is it's Greg, it's going to go out like with a whimper, right? Like we are just going to work on it from all these different directions, right? Like we we will get testing of certain communities like universities and schools that will help reduce the new cases per 100,000 in, in, in different communities, right? We will make, you know, mask wearing will be more normalized, you know, right? So that, you know, people, how people act will just change, right? Um, and we'll have vaccines that will start off with being administered to the most highly susceptible people and then ultimately work their way through the population. Will, will they get Full uptake. I agree with all the concerns everybody has, right? Like, who, you know, some people are going to be worried about it. It's a new vaccine, you know, right? Like, all, all those social questions, huge questions, right? And that, that's another reason where I'm like, you know, get fi figure out a strategy to get us to a place that that is not miserable in advance of the vaccine, right? Like that, that, like that, that to me, I think should be on the mind of every governor, every mayor, every leader of a of a large organization, school or workplace should be saying. How do I make this work for another year, right? Without some other, because you know, how different is it from when we talked in in May, right now, Greg? Right? I mean, like you know, like back in May, we would have been, well, maybe this is gonna, you know, maybe it's two months. We, I don't know when it's, you know, right? Like, like it doesn't, it's not all that different. Like, and the only thing we're hanging on is the vaccine, right? To really change things, right? Like, other than that, the other big motion has been the universities, right? Rolling, rolling out testing and kind of proving that out, but. Um, I, I think we need to do a little more uh, or else we run the risk of of a kind of miserable 21 um, in terms of, of what can be open and, and kind of how, how an economic performance as well, in my opinion, for for any any brick and mortar. Jason, one of the things that is different from the end of May is that millions more people have had it. And, and as you said, I don't know what the multiplier is. Yeah. I read something that the CDC said the multiplier could be as much as 10 asymptomatic for those that, that are confirmed. So at what point does enough of the society, and then, you know, they talk about this, there's a lot of, you know, again, this is, it, it's in all the publications, but I don't know where the expertise is. In some parts of New York, you know, maybe 70% people either had it or were exposed to it. Yeah. Um, so so at what point, you know, does, does that start to push the contagion down and make it a little easier, or is that another yeah. just hope that we're floating? Uh, it's a little bit of hope, but but there is a real component of it's cer it's certainly well. Let me let me answer this two ways. One, uh, people who have recently got it are uh, for certainly for some period of time immune to get it again with some high likelihood. That's true. So that just means that yeah, every person who gets it reduces the likelihood of of spread in their community because they they're not going to get it again and pass it to someone else. Now, a couple things have happened. We have had the first like solidly confirmed repeat infections okay in other words where people have gotten it twice and we've like genome sequenced to confirm that they're actually different viruses so so, so that now not widespread not tons of people or anything and who knows biology is super weird and so it could be some weird other thing that that that's unique to that person or but but the the beginnings of hey how long does the you know how how well and how long does the immunity protect you is is still very very much an open question with this disease because we have literally only been living with this disease in force since january right so so we just don't know so if it turns out that it doesn't last that long then th that whole strategy kind of herd immunity as it, as colloquially known it ain't that great right and and so so that's one way it doesn't happen and then, and then the other answer is like we're still at relatively low prevalence across the United States. Like, you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to pull an exact number right now, but it's not like, it's not in certain areas, maybe it's up at 60%, but that's definitely not the case across the whole country. Um, you know, uh, maybe it's more like 15% or 20. So, so, so there's still a lot of room to go uh, to, and I don't know that we'll, we won't go there quickly. Like, that's my point, right? Like, like the, the mayors will just keep dialing down the economy to keep us, sitting at x cases per hundred thousand rather than blow the hospitals up yeah. so so i mean that that's just to me it's it's pretty straightforward um 
The only other thing I'll mention uh, earlier on the question on supply chain, the other bit is, 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 that's not to be shortchanged is the logistics. So for clinical diagnostics, you kind of have this whole system, right? Like you go to your doctor, you go to a clinic, you do da 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 da. But school, like, like all this, like you know, University of Illinois had to put all these tents up, and like you know, like we had to build out the logistics to to get all these people tested, right? And so like we've done stuff at Ginkgo now, like we're just opening our first. Um, uh, sort of open testing lab uh, in a building like with the landlord where it's basically like any one of the companies in the building is not big enough to have like like I can go out we have our own testing room that's open five days a week and people go in we have a decent number of employees and we're in this game but if you're a smaller employer in a bigger building the landlord can do it right and, and set up you know a testing center in the lobby and then anybody can can basically just use it that that's proving that's looking promising and so so I do think you, but you got to figure out those logistics to actually get the, the suppressive te suppression testing in people's hands that that will also to answer the question or the, the question um, from earlier that's also going to affect what it takes to really get this stuff out broadly we, we need to have those sort of smart um, logistics uh, to, to get the testing done and what about another thing that's getting a lot of attention particularly you and I were talking about the early uh, cold in the Northeast you know winter's yeah. coming and and the you know indoors versus outdoors seems to be uh, a big deal. So I, I'd like you to comment on that. And then, so as everybody goes indoors in the parts of the country where they have no choice, um, you know, uh, what about eating inside in a restaurant? Is that just going to be difficult in in most places? Yeah, um, yeah. So I think there's there there's clear evidence that uh, that in that indoor transmission is a thing. Uh, the CDC has gone back and forth on is it aerosolized and so the, this is the big thing to do with the six feet like it does it only come out as a droplet like if i cough and it's in like a little particle or is it just floating around the room that's aerosolized um mixed mixed data on this at a minimum but that who would suggest that it's aerosolized and so and so so if that's the case that's the that's your issue with the indoors right it means it can circulate airflow matters all these things matter so i i do so, so two things about the fall that people are worried about. One is that people going indoors. The second is cold and flu season um, and, and the effect that's going to have um, on all this. And so maybe that, there's a little bit of optimism there because in the southern hemisphere, like we basically like they obviously have their flu season opposite us. Uh, and so they had a very this past summer when they had their flu season, it was a very depressed flu season. And, and, and the hypothesis is because of the mask wearing. Right. So because we're taking all these precautions to, to reduce uh, transmission of uh, respiratory illnesses amongst each other, it's actually going to bring down the flu cases. So like knock on wood, that ends up happening again, assuming people adhere to things like masks. I think that'll help prevent the problem from compounding uh, with flu. Um, uh, but you still have will have disruption. So, uh, you know, again, someone you're just gonna have a lot more symptomatic people, which means a lot more people staying home if you don't have testing. Right. So you're going to have a person and they have suddenly a cold. That triggers COVID symptoms. Great. Contact trace in the workplace. Okay, you other eight people go home. And okay, everyone go home until you get a test, right? And so so if you don't, if, you know, if you're not like thinking through how to have quick testing there, you're gonna be losing a lot of people. Again, it's all if you're if you're back in the office, uh, due to due to um, symptomatic confusion, basically, whether it's COVID or something else, and you gotta assume the worst. And so so that that's one issue is the cold and flu, and then the other is the indoor thing, which I think is a real concern. I think, yeah, no, no question. Transmission will let, uh, go up in the winter because people will be spending more time indoors. It's good. They pro in other words, it's getting the problem for all the governors and mayors will get harder. And so they'll watch the numbers. And if they go up, it, it just increases the likelihood that we'll have more um, economic uh, problems. So the, the challenge around, um, I mean, if, 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 if I own a restaurant in the Northeast, it's going to get harder again. I think so. Yeah. And again, case counts. So, so, so if it, through other mechanisms you can keep your case counts low, then you could have indoor dining, right? It, it's just a thing that increases the rate of spread, right? And, and again, if you're the mayor, you're just watching that new case. Yeah, like I'm sure that everyone, like I get up every morning and look at, you know, like we, I, I, I grew up down in Florida and we used to, as kids, um, 
graph hurricanes when they like it was like pre-internet so we'd like print out the newspaper and like put little pins in as the hurricanes came across the atlantic when i was a kid and it made and it was like made me feel better it was kind of like you you know you like watch so i'm having my kid i'm like we're literally like marking covid cases in boston as the kids are in school because i want them to feel like they know what's going on you know right that they're not just in the dark about this whole thing like kind of like i was with the hurricanes as a kid uh, and i'm sure like every mayor and governor they get up every morning they look at that number because th that is what allows them to make decisions about what to open. So you want your restaurants to be open this winter? Get the case countdown, right? Yeah. And, and the way you get the case countdown, in my opinion, is how people act. So good policy, like, you know, we're all in this together stuff, which New York City, for example, is a great place to do because of everyone's collective experience back in the, in, the, uh, um, in March and April. Uh, and then testing, right? Like, like finding the needles, right? And so, so, and then supported, by the way, supported isolation. It needs to feel, um, socially okay like if you're one of the needles like great like okay you got found out stay home you've got support you've got food you got you know you don't feel like you need to go to work the next day yeah. because like oh my gosh every every when you go to work all you're doing is closing the restaurants right like like you going out the door is 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 going to force the mayor's hand right and so we we all have to do that together that that's the only it's not an easy button on this thing yeah so I have a question from Avery Sheffield, uh, uh, one of uh, my colleagues. Do you see any companies well positioned to offer, and we started talking about this, but just this is more precise, high volume, rapid, quick turnaround testing outside of schools, universities, and are they starting to pursue offering it? And, and uh, this might be in the corporate world, uh, you know, the, yeah. the, the landlord's got to go get it somewhere, right? Yeah. If it's a building with, you know, 10,000 people in it. So, uh, Avery's asking, is there anybody going after that? Is that what Abbott's doing? No, th that's more like what we're doing, right? So, so, so what, what's happening is um, you're seeing a few players say, let me handle that like last mile logistics so that you can sit down with a workplace or, or school, right? Just an organization that wants to have people back and figure out a plan and then get the right kind of tests for that plan to those people. And so... And then you have places like Avid who are like test developers, right? So I could just go out, you know, Avid ones are a special case because the government bought all those, but I could go source a bunch of tests and get them to somebody. Or I could also build my own testing, which we're doing because I'm worried about supply chain to also get to those people. But there's sort of, there's the get it in their hands and be that interface so that they can call someone up and, and not have to figure out how to handle testing themselves. And we do do that with a variety of products, either we train your people, we put our people, or we can build you a testing center like, like we're talking about with the landlords. Uh, and then also on the back end, supply chain, supply chain, supply chain. So making sure we have access, whether it's a test we're buying or a test we're developing ourselves to keep the numbers going up as more and more people uh, decide to go back to work. And so that that's exactly what we're focused on, so yeah. So um, you're, you're, uh, I had a question for you on um a more normalized world, but you've partially answered it, but it is an important question for everybody listening. So I'll, I'll put it back out there and let you kind of wrap uh, the, the, the whole uh, part of this uh, together. Um, the notion of when COVID-19 will be, as you said, it'll go out with a whimper. Can you can you lay out a, a timeline and a few uh, checkpoints along that timeline, Jason, so people can, you know, what, what, you know, how, how, when will the whimper occur that will allow people to feel great about, uh, quote, acting normally? Cool. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, it, the, I, yeah, I, I, it will be a mix of having, you will need the, va I think you will need to have the vaccine out. And you will ideally on the way there, unless you really want to get beat up, have built out pretty large scale um, sort of asymptomatic broad testing. Um, but like, when, when am I like just having a all hands meeting at Ginkgo with a buffet lunch and no masks? At least two years, yeah. wow. if not more, I would say. I think yeah. uh, much of society here and around the world isn't prepared for that answer, right? That's not what the, uh, what, what politicians have wanted them to hear. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that, right? Yeah, no. uh, you're right, yeah. So Jason, uh, uh, there's there will be that point though. Uh, yeah, and, oh yeah, uh, that's so, a good thing. Oh yeah, so I don't wanna be on super negative. You know, like here's my view that the, what, this is like, um, it is a it is a real global scale problem, Greg. Right? Like, you know, like it remind I've been, you know, I've read a, 
I like reading history books and I was reading a lot about sort of World War II, which is like obviously a global scale problem, but like it, there, there wasn't like a common enemy, right? Like, like it was a global scale problem with like two sides on it. Uh, th this is a global scale problem where like everybody's got the same enemy and, and there is like bits here and there of, you know, supply chain nationalism, vaccines, I get all that stuff, but, but like the whole world wants to put this thing to bed, right? And it is painful for everybody. That's a really unique situation, right? And so I do think that there's an opportunity for a lot of change all over the place, uh, you know, whether it's how we do work, how different countries interact, how we build out the infrastructure to combat infectious disease in the first place. Like, like here, here I'll, I'll leave you on a positive. You know, we there is so much need to solve this problem in terms of both economic and like geopolitical pressure that if we really solve it at scale, you can make a dent in infectious disease generally. Like, like the new technologies, for example, not you know, on these lateral flows, if you take it a couple more generations, in other words, if we can do another six months and 12 months of innovation there, you start to have $3 tests you, you know, that, that are gonna be relevant and highly accurate for probably to be repurposed against many, many other infectious diseases, right? And, and that could make a real impact in things like malaria, which by the way, kills you know million plus people a year, on its own, just not here in the United States. And so, so I think you're gonna get like, the upshot of this is pressure to solve a global problem together. And, and if you lean into it and then commit to it over the next decade, I think you could put infectious disease in the dirt. Uh, and that would be a good thing uh, from my standpoint as we enter the, the, the next 50 years where you know biotechnology and genetic engineering are gonna be like programming computers. We would like to go into that with no infectious disease. Uh, is, is sort of my view. And so I think, I think we have an opening to do that if we, if we build out the tools right now to respond to COVID-19 effectively. And, and the follow-on from that, and, and this will be my, my last question for you, the follow-on for that uh, is uh, our ability to next time, Yeah, I mean, there is a next time, bring all of the lessons and all of the, the, the technological progress you just described and medical progress so that if there's COVID-20 or whatever there is, yeah. Uh, we don't go through what we're going through this time. You think it's highly possible that 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 we'll handle the next one much better? We will absolutely handle it better. And I think if we if we do our jobs right right now, then there's a need to be a next one. In my opinion, you know, it'll it'll just be a thing that we can beat before it starts. Um, but and that that assumes a lot of build out over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. But I think the world will have the incentive to build that stuff out. Uh, and I promised that was the last one, but one more, just in terms of the United States, um, it, it, given what you described and how long it's with us, it, it'll be more of a kind of city by city, state by state, university by university process than over the next six or 12 months, even restaurant by restaurant within certain areas where the restaurant may be able to open because the cases are not, they're not in that community. And as long as the cases don't pop, then the restaurant can continue to hopefully survive. But it's going to be, a, a divergent set of responses, uh, you know, across the country in many ways. Yeah, I, each community will will need to solve it itself, and, and because they, you know, what you're, it is a local problem for sure. But the best practices and importantly, the technology should be delivered nationally. Yeah. In other words, like I want to get Ginkgo's tech out to all fifty states. You know, like you shouldn't have worse tech because you're not in Boston, right? That there's no excuse for that, right? Um, now, you might have a different case count and different ways, you know, different events and things like that you need to worry about if you're in Iowa versus New York City, but the technology should be just as good. Um, and so I wanna make sure it gets out there nationwide. Well, Jason, uh, thank you again for being here. We are lucky, this is one of the strengths of this country that we have a company that, uh, you know, like uh, Kinko Bioworks that you founded a little over 10 years ago with some colleagues and a professor from MIT, we talked about that last time, that's front and center in the response here. Uh, this is one reason why I remain optimistic about where we are and, and where we're going as a nation. Uh, so thank you uh, very much for being on a second time. Um, given the nature of the dialogue and the timeframes, we may get uh, round three with you if we can talk you into it at some point. Um, hopefully with uh, a slightly uh, uh, more progressed environment around us. But uh, 
bravo to Ginkgo and everything that you've done there uh, in, in, a, in a spectacular company that's, you know, only been alive for 10 years or so. So thanks again for being here. Yeah, we'll keep working on it. Uh, and Jason with the quote, and I picked this in advance and I'm glad I did. Uh, Ayn Rand, I would assume you have uh, read The Fountainhead. Uh, I, I did at some point. Yeah, this was for this is for you uh, and for Ginkgo. But um, uh, she said, and I quote, uh, the question isn't who's going to let me, it's who's going to stop me. And Ginkgo is breaking uh, new paths and, and really on the cutting edge of getting us uh, through this, in, in, uh, at least in part. So uh, congratulations to you and to the company that you lead. Uh, uh, and we appreciate you being on here uh, again. And I want to thank um, all of uh, Rockefeller Capital Management's clients, employees, friends who've been here today. Thanks for those who sent the questions in. Uh, I didn't get the Jeter question around uh, Jason's favorite uh, player when he was growing up. But, uh, uh, we could have thrown that Wade in. Box. <laughs> I don't yeah, know anybody. <laughs> okay. He did play for the Yankees, you know, at the end of the He did eventually. <laughs> so uh, thank you for all of you for being here. We will continue the series, and we've got some uh, upcoming uh, great uh, speakers and, and events planned. Uh, please stay well as we get into the fall, uh, and um, all the best to uh, all of our clients at Rockefeller Capital Management.